over time, I've realized that the only way to really continue this journey is by giving back to the people who have given me a lot of spiritual support, financial support, and guidance through the way. And uh, it's an honor to bring back to the program a, a dear friend and a guy whose family, uh, you know, I feel like we connected on the on the ball fields of um, of Egypt on the way to uh, Mount to Zion in Israel uh, a long time ago, and it's been. Uh, great to see uh, a flourishing uh, with uh, his older brother, Drew Cressman, my best friend. And I get a chance today to speak to um, his younger brother, gifted drummer and uh, wealth financial advocate, Evan Cressman. Welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you. How can I help you? Didn't Gan <laughs> say that? How can I help you today? How can I help you today? That's right. I mean, and, you know, it's, um, I mean, Stepping back from it all, Evan, I mean, you, I just try to gauge this, um, you were at Bloomington and you were immersed with all types of, you know, you were taking classes, you were playing in bands, but when did you like, I think the fascinating thing for me is that like, you still live on the East coast and you're totally hip to the New York scene, but then you connected with these, these, you know, these cowboys from the from the Southern California, and I think you tapped into something related to their vibe the the mellowness of the the, the lack of pretentiousness the the lack of anxiety everything that's exuded on the East Coast was not there on the West Coast and even that might be present in the right. music but I'm just trying to figure out how because I mean that to me is still revelatory it's like how did you know that these cats were the hip cats? So you're talking about the music that you and I both really like and, and that scene of music that's coming sort of based out of Southern California and, um, you know, a, a modernized version of, of the, maybe we'll call it the Laurel Canyon scene or the psychedelic. I, yeah, I mean, I just look at it as like, I, absolutely. I mean, the guys that that maybe, you know, had some kind of musical pedigree, maybe their fathers were musicians, but these were essentially uh, not the musicians that were not part of the academy. And um, exactly the, the you know, the the yeah. the gospel beaches, the the furthers, the I mean, I, I'm just saying, when did that pivot occur Beach between between jazz and, and and, you know, your your leanings towards Pender? Pendarvis and, and, and Pendergrass to, to, to the psychedelic, uh, yeah. you know, hipsters. Right. All right. Well, we'll take it all the way back. When I was really young and first started getting into music or selecting my own music, I was most... music that really grabbed me was Hendrix and, and the Beatles, both of which I was deeply obsessed with for a long time. Um, and so I guess around that same time period in the mid-90s, two big acts that were really popular in, in my household, or really between me and my brother Drew and, and a lot of people his age and, and a bit younger in Cherry Hill, where we grew up, New Jersey, were the Black Crows and Lenny Kravitz. And both of their early material still holds up really well and I think is some of the you know better all-time classic oriented rock music especially from that time period so um, and then from there I you know branched into all different kinds of music obviously became hugely into the Grateful Dead and studied jazz very closely for many years through college and um, 
you know, still consider myself an app. Uh, still consider myself to be a learner and a, and a seeker in terms of new music. But anyway, pulling it back to the Rose-related and, and Lenny Kravitz-related thing. So in 2005, when I had just gotten out of college and was living in New York, the Black Crows reunited and did a run of shows in New York and then stayed together for a number of years. And um, through that scene, I first started to become aware of Beachwood Sparks because Beachwood Sparks had opened for the Black Crows in 2000 or 2001, around 9/11, and I just want to be. I want. I want to. I want to interject for a second here, because right? you're, you're you're riffing hard. Did you you got hit to them. You got hit to them. When, are you all right? I don't want you to get in an accident. When you know, traffic. Like traffic. You know, I. I mean, they. You just locked in on them as the opening act. You didn't have hadn't heard their stuff no. before. That. Okay, I just want to be clear about no, that. Not at all. So. I had heard of them through like Black Crow's message boards and just was familiar with the name and probably even checked them out once or twice and it didn't really resonate, but I was just the first I'd even become you know, aware of Beachwood Sparks. I don't think I was really paying attention when they opened for the Crows. In fact, I'm pretty sure I wasn't even listening to the Crows much at that time, um, but when I started getting back into them in their scene in 2005 and that time period, Beachwood Sparks was a name that was like, you know, familiar because a lot of the Black Crows fans were also big Beachwood Sparks fans who at that time were probably still together. Um, so then once the Black Crows finally disbanded, which I was fine with, if not happy with, but that's a separate conversation, and the Chris Robinson Brotherhood was formed, um, which contained Neil Casal, who was a former member of Beachwood Sparks, not their original lineup, but their later lineups. Uh, I still really didn't get into Beachwood until, I guess it was 2016, the CRB did a three-night run at Brooklyn Bowl, um, one of the last like, proper New York City multiple-date runs. And one of the nights, we were having dinner up the street from Brooklyn Bowl at Cafe Mogador, which you and I have, I don't know if we've ever been there together. No, but I love this. This is the greatest story of all time. Yeah, it's a really good story. And Neil Casal walks in to have dinner on some sort of date or with, with a female companion. And I was there with my fiance at the time, my brother and his wife. And um, before I was leaving, I, you know, I went up and, and just... He had put out a side project earlier that year called with a band called Gospel Beach, whose lead singer and, and main songwriter is Brent Rademacher. So I mentioned to him that I've just been digging that album. It's kind of been the, it had been the soundtrack of, of, the, of the summer that year. Those shows were in the fall. And he said, well, if you're a Brent Rademacher fan, you got to dive into Beachwood Sparks. Mm. And he recommended their first album, the self-titled album, and also the Tarnished Gold album. And he made some funny comment, like, I'll give you a money-back guarantee. Check them out. And I remember that night. That was the, that was the third night of a three-night run. You had been to all three? Um, you had, wait, remember, hold on. First of all, he, he, you made him look great in front of that date also, you know? Yeah, I know. Yeah. In retrospect, we wished we had, like, sent a bottle of wine to him. Oh, man. Uh, like a half, half flask or so, half, half vase or something, you know? Well, the other funny thing was it was like getting close to showtime, and I remember seeing Neil finishing up. But anyway, um, <laughs> so he recommended those albums, and I remember 
getting home after that was the third night, and at that point, anyone who's seen a three-night run of any, you know, band that can expand or play psychedelic music or really jam, you know, I mean, I remember during that run, like, having really detailed dreams of, with the band in it and the music in it, and, you know, your, your brain's just a little, a little fried, and you're hearing, you know, you're hearing their music everywhere you go. You can relate to that. So I get home and yeah. I throw on that first Beef with Sparks album and it just hit me really deeply. I mean, I was probably, you know, pretty stoned on whatever I was stoned on at the time. And um, and it, the sound really clicked. And I do think that that sound was a big influence on what the CRB was going for, which obviously is, you know, one of my all-time favorites. Well, no, I, I wanted, this is what I, this, you, um, you just, you see, you're channeling, you're already reading my mind. Explain... As a musician, and obviously this is conjecture, but I think it's, I think it's uh, well found. But I want you to articulate for the audience because a lot of cat, a lot of CRB freaks, even though they're on a hiatus, why, why, why do you believe that that was the muse that CR was following? Was that Beachwood muse? Explain, like, from was it a lyricist, a lyricism point? Uh, I mean, what was it? Well, I appreciate you calling it a hiatus. First of all. Uh, well, those guys are good. They need the dough, you know. <laughs> um, well, the CRB started as a, a Los Angeles-based band, and um, I don't think the CRB was directly trying to channel Beachwood Sparks as much as they were trying to channel, you know, psychedelic California groove-based music. Right. So, you know, just as easily as I say Beachwood Sparks, I could say you know, the birds or you know, Doug Sam or any number of influences that have impacted Chris and Chris's writing and, and Neil's writing or influence on the writing. Um, so, you know, the direct Beachwood lineage is having Neil Casal in the band and Chris, you know, obviously being a fan of those guys. Oh, and I just see like, now. It, it, it's oh, almost yeah. like a regional thing. Yeah. And I think regionalism you know, is really coming back into play in the music industry right now. In fact, I was reading about that, um, something about that recently, and I think Eric Deutsch mentioned that on your show as well. And right. I do think there is something to that. What, what, and what, and like what, I mean, outside, you know, I mean, you have your own finger on the pulse. I mean, in terms of how does that look in today's paradigm? Because, I mean, you know, with syndication you're you know the same song that's being played in portland maine is being played in san diego so how what is that regionalism look like like you could even you could sure. even you can even look at brooklyn i mean does each of the boroughs have their own regional sound i don't even know but i mean yeah. outside of the yeah. article explain that re, how neo regionalism yeah well i think the reason that that's occurring right now is because so few bands are able to you know make a living the traditional way that bands made a living for a long time, meaning like, you know, you get signed by a label, get some kind of funding or an advance, they do some promotion for you, you put out an album, etc. Bands, in order to support themselves, really need to get out and gig and build their own audience. Um, and typically that begins at a very grassroots local level. So, um, and, and, you know, it's easier to get music out now than ever, which is a good thing, and that does make it easier to get your music out to disparate parts of the globe, but there still is certainly, you know, a lot of bands that will have a following just in their city or town, or a music venue that has 
very loyal patrons that check out whichever bands cut through there, you know, come on stage at, at that venue, um, things like that. So in New York, for example, you have a crew of super talented musicians, jazz guys, and other genre guys that gig regularly at a variety of venues. Many of them you and I have, have gone to together. And the same thing goes on in Nashville, and the same thing goes on around the Echoplex in L.A. And these are just the, the scenes that I'm familiar with. Um, Pappies. Yeah, I'm no, I dig, with. yeah. So it's interesting, um, and and it's important to for people who care about music to get out and support these venues and support. I mean, Go ahead. You know, is it fair to say that like? Um, I, I just think I couldn't have asked a better person for this, but. Uh, when I talked to some of the Lotus Boutique, and, I, you know, again, they were irritated with me at Babies, but then, you know, by Sunday night with Soulman, happy birthday, Maddie Soulman O'Brien, but, uh, I, I mean, I had come full circle, and then I started talking to them at the Shred Shows on the West Coast, and they really talked about, you know, those shows uh, that we saw in New York, they were historic for a variety of reasons. They may not have been the greatest, you know, like, you know, technically the greatest shows or the best set list but there was a special um you know uh, sort of I, some of the highest energy shows i i saw there was so the, the the spirit with the spirit was in the room and and so but they they really came down on it and said that they that they um specifically erica was it just it because the crb really started to um, you know, uh, another gestate and 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 become huge with this core group of Leone, Jeff Hill, Mac, and Casal and and Cr. That it was heartbreaking for a lot of the Lotus Cats to not have uh, Adam there. And so, setting aside that it's a hiatus, most likely, you know, you know they'll be back in a year, a couple of years. How did you feel about the way? everything ended for them uh you know just as somebody who actually because i know that it helped you through that music got you through essentially the last seven years of your life <laughs> oh certainly the soundtrack of it and that that's the, yeah exactly i mean you know no one's jumping off a cliff but i'm saying it was the soundtrack of your life yeah, yeah. And, and just great music important music and and exactly what you would hope for in a band in terms of their progression and, and growth and pursuit of artistic um, you know quality and and, uh, and the word I'm looking for like just merit um, the way it ended was fine by me I uh, you know I, I, I don't as a fan we live in this era now where you have so much more access to artists, athletes, and you know social figures that more so than people had back in the day. And back in the day, the artists almost had like a myth-like sort of figure. And I think that that's a good thing. I think it's good for the artists to you know think about their audience in that manner and try to 
cultivate their art in that manner and, and think about things in a, in a bigger level than worrying about, like, upsetting a couple of fans because now they kind of get to know us personally and we get to know them personally. Yeah, so, right. you know, I mean, th those guys spent so much time on the road and together and put out so much great music to expect a, a group of individuals, talented individuals, adults, to necessarily be able to work together, especially in like the strain of the line of work that they're working, I just think is unreasonable, even in a professional environment that's, you know, highly normal for someone, even if they are a core person, to need to step away or if it's in the best interest in everybody else of everybody else or the leader thinks it's in the best interest for that person to step away, that shit happens. So I was fine with it and I was pretty excited about the the potential with some of the other keyboard players they they had they brought on at the end, obviously very talented guys. Um, you know, for me the hardest potential departure would be would be Neil. Uh, but that hasn't happened yet. And either way, you know, I'll support all of those guys no matter what they do going forward because I think they're all really talented artists and, and musicians. <laughs> Let me ask you, though. Um, other cats that I've talked to, uh, Katie Warrington Remick, who was uh, at those shows, and, and you got a chance to meet her, she talked literally about her social community collapsing. Uh, this, for so many people, the CRB, um, especially on the West Coast, for some reason, it, it was a fam. there was a family. I, I mean, not outside of the boutique. It, it was people's social relationships. Yeah. And she was scattered because she just didn't know how to pick up the pieces. Now, you struck me as somebody who, you were going to those shows, you know, Fairfield Revisited. It was, these were heavy times. I mean, they were, this was not a social experience for you. But I ask you, what about, I mean, are you one of those cats that's like, because I just get the feeling that there that people like Katie were like, oh, I'm not going to see this cat at the show. I'm not going to see this person anymore. I'm not going to see that person anymore. But for, right. yeah. was it more? I mean, was it really about? Yeah, go, I mean, I just riff on that, you know, because Pratt's with you all the time, you know. Right, and it's like, all right, well, what's what's going to you know? Normally, every December, I hit the Fillmore shows, and in the fall, I like you know, I follow the band up into the Northeast. Yeah, maybe if you hit last year's Fillmore uh, show, I wouldn't have had my car towed, you know. Um, I see them in California. That's, that's all on the bucket list. Um, no, but I mean, like, it's not. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, is I, it like? Are you like? Are you like? You're I like? I'm not gonna. See, yeah. Go ahead. I think it's so cool that that it developed in that way, and and they started to have a real scene around them. And in California, that was pretty evident from the get go. And on the West Coast, I don't know if they quite ever built up that kind of following out here. Maybe that, that was last run of shows. It started to feel that way. Um, and that's another reason that the hiatus could be a good thing. I mean, when they return, I think a lot of those people or people that were on the border of being those type of people are going to be really motivated. I mean, they, they started to spoil us a little bit. And, you know, there would come a time where th there was a period of time, obviously things happened in life, but you know, where it was unthinkable for me to, like, miss uh, a show in Lancaster or something. And then, <laughs> Ardmore, you know, yeah, absolutely. And you have a kid, yeah, Ardmore, yeah. you know, things pop up. So, and I'm sure it's the same thing for those guys. I mean, you just can't expect them to 
to be on the road with that type of touring schedule all the time. And you look at the bands that are maybe like a notch bigger than them, and most of them aren't doing triple digit shows per year. They're more doing 50 to 70 shows a year. Even 70 is probably on the high end. I mean, these guys averaged 100, 110 shows a year. So I think, you know, perhaps cutting back a little bit can increase the demand. Now, on the flip side, and I remember McDougal saying this on your show, you know, those weeknights in Lancaster were what also made the band so tight. And, you know, when they came through Brooklyn on the weekend that you could expect a really top-notch show. And and it also affords them, I'm sure it helps, you know, keep the lights on during the week. So I'm sure that, you know, these guys, they've thought that through and they're all, they all have enough road experience or... Chris has enough road experience to know like what's what's actually um, you know what's solvent. Talking to Evan Cressman here on the Jake Feinberg show. I mean, it's just so great to hear uh, his uh, his vocals uh, all over the world on Power Talk. Um, if you were talking to cats out there, mm-hmm. I mean, you're really somebody who's somebody who likes to support every time I say, yeah, I can get us on the guest list for shred, you know, you're like, or, you know, catch you're like, now nah, I got to support him, man. And so, I mean, like we're not, we're talking to a musician and somebody's also very deeply indebted to the music scene itself, but putting CR aside, just putting, cause you know, he's got, I mean, he's marinating with Camille. He's got his solo work going on and you know, whatever else. Could you hit some of the young the cats that might be lost right now? Uh, socially, uh, they may not have that co- that moral compass of the CRB. Uh, what who are what are some of the bands that cats could check out regionally or even you know that that may get them off and satiate them until CRB gets back on on the horse? Hmm. Tough. I I would tend to recommend gravitating almost more towards venues than wow this is deep dude get, go with this to deep yeah especially especially if it's regional i mean i think supporting the venues in many ways is just as important as supporting the bands there's not too many bands a band has to get to a certain level in terms of like their ability to fill a room and the energy they can bring to make it worthwhile to be getting on the road and following them but i think no matter where you live, there's probably a, a music venue somewhere in the vicinity that's worth supporting and getting out. You know, in in New York, in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, there's a ton. In Hudson Valley, there's some really interesting, exciting places to support. I've heard of a lot of really cool places out west. I remember when I was in Indiana, there was a couple of really good venues in Bloomington. That's one way to do it. Um, I thought you were going to go directly. I thought you were going to go directly to Farmer and Horn. You know, I mean, what about those cats? I mean, I understand that they're not. I'm just talking about, I guess, personalities, people that can bring, ultimately bring the spirit uh, to the people. I mean, are, I, I know you don't want to leave anybody out, but it's like, yeah. And I think you're right because you know what, no, like, I, I you like, and Cohen are going like to Lenatica. Yeah, well, exactly. Like anybody who's playing there, but. I like the mentality that you kind of have. It's look at the bands that you like, find out who the exactly. You know, it's usually pretty obvious who the lead singer or songwriters are, but find out who the backing people are, and see what other projects they're working on, and go check those guys out or support those guys. And you know, I think that's really neat. Like um, 
the bassists for the Lumineers, who are a huge band and play stadiums whoa, and all that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, I think his name's Brian Isaac or something, and he was the bassist for a long time with Midnight Ramble Band and the Weight Band, played with Weeder, played with um, Leone, Leone. Leone, yeah, and you know, now he's in this big band, I'm sure he's making a lot of money, and I think they probably make pretty good music, I'm not all that familiar with them, but, you know, if you were a big Lumineers fan, there's a guy, I know he has a lot of other side projects that are great, and I know he's a really talented musician and, and good guy, you know, those, I think that type of approach is a really good way to find other local scenes that you want to follow. Um, Can you talk a little bit? Because we we know another band that I would I would point people to, especially for the CRB people. I mean, the CRB people, the ones who are really into it, already know. You know, there's so many tentacles that fly off of Chris, (laughs) Neil, Adam, Tony, and Jeff. That are that you know, if there's some element of their sound that appeals to you, there are other bands that are channeling that. Before I let you go, because you're on the road, and um, you know it's always great to catch up with you, um, and uh, I just wanted you to. To me, the um, you know you treated me to a a really healthy weekend of music this summer after uh, Unde- uh, unlimited devotion with Gravy and Ardmore. After that, it was just like my brain got split open, uh, and um, but one show that I missed. Um, and I think it might be the show of the year, uh, was uh, Northern Aggression. And I was hoping you could take us through that band yeah. and uh, talk a little bit about why it's compelling for them to get back on the bandstand as soon as possible. Yeah, I really hope they do get back on the bandstand. That was somewhat of a New York City-based all-star band that I remember trying to ask drummer Tony Loney who's also in the CRB like who the point person was there but I, I can't really remember the conversation it was after a show you, you can't get imagine. a straight answer you can't but, get a, it's always out of context with Leon uh, I mean, yeah, and, and you know who knows what mindset you were, we were faded yeah point. right yeah uh, from my perspective it seems like Scott Sherrard's running point who's a super talented guitarist and was the musical director for Greg Allman for the last 10 20 years of his life hmm. Um, and features uh, a really talented studio and working local musician, Adam Minkoff on bass, who's really exciting. The sax player is a guy, Craig Dreyer, who plays keyboards with a lot of um, Sherrard's bands. I can't recall the name of the trumpet player or the keys player, but you know, essentially what they were doing the time I saw them is all really selective, Southern funk cover tunes. Um, golf, co- golf, coast, golf Coast stuff, yeah. Yeah. Staters, New Orleans, Georgia, Texas. They did some Memphis tunes. Uh, one or two originals that fit, that fit the bill. And I don't know how much they rehearsed, but they, right from the get, were extremely tight, extremely funky, very engaging, uh, Everyone on the band stand was a good vocalist. They were passing the mic around for different people to, to sing lead. Um, you know, it was it was a very exciting, cool night, and a band that I have no doubt would translate really well to bigger stages and venues. Um, 
So well, I mean, yeah, like before, yeah. I mean, you're. I mean, you're. I mean, it'd be great for them, but you know, they're all they're all splintered off in their own things. The the Cape is your band with Doc Cressman, and uh, I just kind of wanted yeah. to know, like, you know, it's. 82219 uh 822.20 uh obviously you're going to have a new addition to the to your wonderful family uh Camille uh Levon Danko or Camille Born um the question is where do you want the cape to be on 822.20 I would love to see the cape back in some sort of formation working on tunes and and getting back either in the studio or the bandstand um i don't have any real expectations for it and i think it would take a little bit of time for us to get back to sounding at a level that we want to sound at before we brought it to out to the public again but as long as something is in the works at that time I would be happy, and I think in in all of our minds, everybody who's affiliated with the Cape, you know, it's been a long hiatus, but no one ever said it was over. Um, oh, I love this so, stuff. I mean, you you know, you could you could you could, I mean, you could bury somebody in the ground, and and you know, Evan's arm is still above ground, you know, swinging around that drumstick. It's never well, gonna. I I mean, songs, what, what, I mean, songs, it, the songs will will live on. The songs were were great and um, old jaw bone you know yeah great <laughs> enough that i i really do believe there is an audience for them um so just do you do you foresee it uh i mean obviously you need to get back you know and get into you know you know like get get your get your sound live sound and get back into playing shape but do you foresee it possibly just being uh Doc on guitar and you on drums and double vokes with you guys or I mean is there going to be some added instruments I mean what, what would what would you like to what would you if you had your way what would it what would it look like I think if we had our way it would be built out a bit more than that um, with the bassists and other musicians and and yeah probably other vocalists but certainly that's enough You know, just the two of us, it, it was enough and, and would continue to be enough. Um, we didn't do too much vocal experimentation, just Drew and I, back then. Uh, and that was likely a, at least a bit because I think both of us had to just get comfortable playing together again. But this time around, I think it'd be at least worth exploring. Well, I mean, I cannot wait to get some of that material over to... Uh, Brent Rademacher, I think it's important you guys get connected with a, a label of authenticity, and we've taken this thing full circle. So, I mean, um, I'll let you get back to business today. I mean, if you're heading back from Southampton, you want to do part two, uh, you know, feel free to give me a call. But it's, you know, really it's a high honor, and uh, I look forward to 11 8, 19, you know. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Midland, Midland Freaks forever. Yeah, Horn Freaks United. Have a great day, Evan. Later. Big fan of the Jake Feinberg show, Evan Cressman. Just cooked there for 33 minutes. Happy birthday to Maddie Soulman O'Brien. We'll be back at noon with Charlie Burrell on the Jake Feinberg show.
Thank you. 